back to the Lightly Literary Podcast, the only podcast that has to remind you right off the top that I have a statement from our podcast lawyers that I need to issue. It is that we formally retract any compliments or seeming statements of endorsement regarding the Inklings. The statements of any individuals on the podcast are not representative of the podcast values or morals or perhaps legal obligations therein. And that's about as fancy as I could dress up my language today, Amanda. Joining, I think you did a great job. Thank you so much. <laughs> this is the Literary Book Club podcast where if you didn't understand any of the references, that is because you have found episode two of a book club series we're doing. Today we'll be discussing a Haruki Murakami novel called Hard Boiled Wonderland and the End of the World. Specifically, we'll be discussing the whole book now because this is part two. So if you are listening to this perhaps by mistake and you want to go back and listen to part one or go read the book, please do so. But today we will be discussing the entire work, the whole thing, mostly the second half. We kind of like to split these up, so we'll largely be discussing the back half of the book, but at this point, everything is fair game. Amanda, do you need to issue any statements of regret regarding the Inklings? Um, just that I want to sympathize, but man, are they gross. Anytime leeches are involved, I'm out. Yeah. Yeah, those are true nightmare creatures. At least we don't live in one of those kind of like Paleozoic eras where they were three feet long or something. I mean, we yeah. we have eels, I guess, but at least eel is good uh, to eat. Eel tastes good. Yeah, yeah. I don't. Ooh, I wonder what leeches taste like then. Only one way to find out, sister. Only one way. <laughs> I'm not doing it. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. You could watch them burn. They do, as the book and the as the novel so grotesquely portrayed, they do kind of curl <laughs> yeah. up when you burn them. They do. They recoil at the at the flame. So you know that's uh, that's something to ponder. Anyway, let's let's get a move on this thing. I'm Travis, by the way. That's Amanda, the co-host. I think I introduced you, Amanda, but we are here to discuss, as I mentioned already, the entirety of the novel, Hard Boiled Wonderland and the End of the World. Kind of a dual narratives surreal adventure romp it's kind of a romp also kind of depressing in some spots too so anyway that's what we're here to do assuming that all of our listeners have diligently read and are interested let's jump in amanda to the first segment of today which we're just going to call highs and lows i could come up with a fancier title but why bother that's what it is now that we've completed the work and we have a complete sense of it and have a grasp on the entirety of it if that's possible in a book like this we can now discuss things that we thought just went really well towards the end and things that we didn't think worked. Uh, why don't you begin us with either high or low? What do you got? Sure. Um, one of the highs that I decided on um, was I really enjoyed that there was so much symbolism and there, everything mm, yeah. is kind of open to interpretation. Like everything is open to interpretation almost. The, I just... And thinking, if I were to read this again, would I come away with a completely different understanding of things? Would I focus on, like, one of the things that I focused on while I was reading was, the like, materialism and his depictions of materialism versus the depictions of, like, a like an absence of, like, anything and everybody is sharing everything, almost like a, like, communist or socialist kind of society with end of the world. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So that's what I fixated on. But then like I, which by doing that, I, I was reading into some of the symbols in a different way. But I was like, man, if I came and read it again in a couple of years, would it be totally different? Probably. It's just, I really like that aspect where it's, it's subtle enough 
that you can bring your own ideas into it and, and feel fulfilled as a reader. Yeah, and I think too, yeah. in regards to the, I don't that portrayal of the, what are we officially going to call the two narratives? Can we still go with end of world in Tokyo? Maybe just say the end in narrative and the Tokyo. I guess they're the one we can call in his mind now that we know what it is. <laughs> we can call yeah. one the mind narrative and one the real world. I mean, now we just know that's what it was. When we right, did yeah, the halfway yeah. pod, it was still a he- it was still the mystery. Now it's that's cleared up. And so, mm-hmm. okay, maybe we'll just call him yeah the real world versus in his head. Yeah, in his mind, yeah. in the end narrative. I guess the one thing I'd comment on that you said in terms of this, like almost, yeah, this propertyless thing, they still have a lot of stuff. It's just no one has any interest in it. They've all yeah. kind of been winnowed down to their most basic desires and their like the simplest pleasures of their lives. And so it's like they have storerooms of just things, but nobody is obsessed with using them or t- taking them up or anything. And he's the only character, right, who, you know, prods about the musical instruments and has that connection to his his the real life his his real self or something so yeah it, it does make for interesting ones any do you want to pick an image or symbol that i don't know struck you the most any moments i guess for me to uh, the discussions of all the authors and the the music um all the references to music you can just look at the chapter names right yeah and then all the references to food and even the constant references to sex right that all to me it just was the epitome of of the material world that we live in now whereas all that stuff is like absent in the mind narrative where uh there's like no books right the thing that he's reading is like dreams the skulls right the unicorn skulls and there's no music except for what he makes with the accordion that he found and even then it like is he only is able to play danny boy once uh the narrator in Tokyo actually, you know, starts singing it. And then like the food is just for sustenance. Like he makes a comment, like the food doesn't taste good, but it's good for you. At some point they, they mentioned one thing. I think it was some kind of noodle soup. And I thought like, all right, right, they got, it's not like they're eating just the grubs, you know, the grubs and the raw (laughs) mushrooms. (laughs) And so it's like, there's some kind of cooking happening, but yeah, compared to the excesses, I mean the one of the final scenes in the real world, is them having a you know seven course whatever Italian feast for the ages, right? And so yeah. with a with a <laughs> so very de- with a very deserving companion, um, which I gotta look <laughs> into the medical procedure for whatever that's whatever she's got going on. Gastric dilation, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just putting down seven course meals every day just to feel something. Um, yeah, no, I think it's it is it is quite a contrast, and there's a lot you could read into in in both worlds. So yeah, that's a great choice. I'll I'll throw out something that I also thought was good. And it was one of the things in the front half of the pod part one that I was I was still I really I think what I said was this book will either catastrophically succeed or fail in the back half based on the twist. I think it succeeded then and by that measure. I don't think this was a failure at all. And I thought the ultimate conflict that w- that was unveiled on 285 is like a horrifying notion of choice. I thought that the though it's though it does read to me now that I summarize it. Or if you summarize this to someone as a baseline kind of like sci-fi premise, I think it would actually sound kind of basic in a way. I mean, the the narrative that's wrapped around this is not basic at all. And the symbols and and the construction and all that stuff is not basic. But it's kind of just like, oh, as it turns out, you know, since your mind can kind of create for infinity the way your consciousness goes... You can you either need to die now or live for eternity. Those are your only choices. 
that's it. And you don't really know. There's no guarantee of what your eternal life will be. Just this estimation based on some kind of conscious part of your brain you don't have access to, your ego or something. And so mm-hmm. I think, yeah, when the when the professor says, no, 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 that's completely by accident. Never intended that. Believe me, it's the truth. I never meant to do anything like this to give him this choice. But if you act now, you can choose if choice is what you want. There's one last hand to be played. And then he says, and you can you can either die right now before Junction A links and just check out. That leaves nothing. And then a profound silence falls over them and the professor coughs and he takes a slug of whiskey. And it, I, it's a really, I think, a, quite a harrowing decision to make, I guess mostly because of the unknowns of what you're choosing if you choose eternal life. But it's kind of a, in a way, it almost felt like a very readable way to present eternity, which is a concept humans have a hard time conceptualizing, you know, as like a grade school kind of, talk it out fun thing it's kind of fun to say like oh maybe i live forever i get to see the earth forever and then you know fiction loves to prod at that in a lot of different ways and expose why that might be like one of the grand horrors of all time if you had to do that if that was you know burned on you and yeah i don't know i just thought this presented it in a very clean way and of course it also brings into real good clarity the other narrative um and so i thought that worked really well and yeah i just thought that the presentation of that conflict and what it meant and how it kind of like pushes this character in the specific ways that he needs to be pushed as just sort of a, mm-hmm. I think we commented on this in part one, but I think we read into his passivity, you know, that he was just a very yeah. complacent person kind of coasting along, not forming attachments and his wife left him, but he didn't seem to care. And they were just, yeah, he just struck us as that. And so this is the conflict I think for a person like that. It's, do you even care enough about this to, you know, to see it through or, or do you care enough about this to make it end forever anyway? So I thought that conflict worked for me. I'm not sure if you felt the same way. I did. Yeah. I've really thought that it was a great presentation. Like you said, of the, the concept of immortality. I really yeah. enjoyed that. And, um, I was wondering if, what's the name of that movie? Um, with Leonardo DiCaprio and JGL, um, where they're Still in the dream and like is it yes yeah. yeah right that idea of like you can be eternally happy or whatever once oh, you oh that right? did happen in that movie after completely because yeah. once you go to the deepest level yeah you will think it is eternity but you then but in the real world you instantaneously wake up so right. then you're which is such a weird conundrum maybe it's not eternity then that would be a paradox i think but it's because because it, he does come back, right? That's the choice. It's like you can stay with her forever in this final realm, uh, or not forever, but for a, so long because time is dilated so much. Or right. but as soon as you come back, which to all the outsiders will be perceived as instantaneously, you'll have lived like <laughs> a million lives or whatever, which is just yeah, it's another one of those maddening time concepts that I think fiction plays with. And I thought this one yeah. did pretty well doing it too. I did too. And I think that it was a a nice way to really clarify um, the relationship between the two worlds, especially with the absence of time in the other, in the, the end of the world narrative that we noticed like from the very beginning, like the clock tower is something that is one of the first images the reader sees. And we're like, okay, so there's like no concept of time there. That's interesting, but very purposefully placed there because of the idea of like eternity later. So I thought it was very cleverly done. Yeah. And, and we noted the writing too, and the writing keeps up. It's just so much more, I don't know, evocative when it's in the minds, the end of the world. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's just evocative to me, I guess the, the, 
the real life narrative is so reference laden and his speech is so casual. And then in the other world there, I don't know, there's just a formality about it. I know we noted that it was felt very archetypal and just sort of this, it had this mythic quality about it, which I think held up pretty well. But yeah, the contrast between those was anyway, striking throughout. That's for sure. Any other highs you want to talk about? Uh, yeah. So the difference between the two worlds, um, what mm-hmm. I liked about the modern world, the the real life stuff was um, I loved uh, Murakami's playfulness when it came to the noir aspects of that narrative. Yeah, yeah that's true. I really enjoyed that. Um, it made me think of and want to go back and read some Raymond Chandler. I don't know if you've read any Raymond Chandler. No, I, and, and frankly, noir is a genre that misses my interest pretty much completely, though. Oh. I don't know. I feel like some movies have that I've seen that dabble in that. Like, is Seven considered kind of noir? Do you know? Oh, Seven? I guess so. Yeah, yeah. I like Seven. I, yeah. There's a, there's a few things out there that I I can say this in uh, fiction in written fiction. I have never really dabbled at all. Movies, I noir's okay. I don't love cop stories or like detective stuff. It mm-hmm. occasionally I do, but yeah, not my favorite thing. I think it can be good. I I enjoyed it. Um. Actually, our, our friend Eric, um, that's like one of his favorite authors, and he mm-hmm. lent me a couple of his books, and I absolutely fell in love with Raymond Chandler. Um, but he was the father of noir fiction. Oh, okay. Right? So when I was reading some of these, especially when um, I was reading like the Big Boy and Junior chapter, yeah, you had yeah. mentioned the language there. That was very, it made me think of like Chicago gangster yeah. kind of language, and it definitely hit that noir streak, but it was like over, like almost funny in the way that he handled that. Murakami handled that. And then, like, right. with the pink girl, um, the granddaughter, she was definitely supposed to be like the femme fatale, right? Um, Mm -hmm. and I loved his depiction of her because she's like, (laughs) he played with this sexuality to make it like awkward, but like in a typical noir novel, like they're just like, they're sex pots, right? The femme fatale is is a sex pot who just oozes sex, but is very like suave about it. But she's like so awkward (laughs) about it. And I just loved that playfulness. Yeah. And and he's not receptive nor seeking. So it's not like he can play it off. Cool. He's usually just like, wait, what? And yeah, she (laughs) gets the offensive. I threw, we can segue with her. I threw that in as also what I thought was one of the high moments. So this is like a micro moment, but I thought her send off was maybe not the, like, I'm going to resurrect you stuff that I guess we could discuss the kind of, Maybe he does have genuine sway on her. She's so taken with him for seemingly no reason, I guess, because he's yeah. an impressive adult. I guess. I guess he does have the mind capability, and maybe she's impressed by the shuffling or something. But at, at any rate, so that's a different thing. But th- I just thought that her send off with wh- when she shoots the guy in the ear, the nonchalance of it, the tone of that was, I thought, a very fitting. You know, he, that character I think came around and was endearing and successful just as a character, and her sort of like maybe unearned or earned confidence is pretty impressive by the end. And so, yeah, when she says, yeah, they don't, the, the gangster team, they don't scare me. They're only after grandfather and you. What am I to them? Just now I sent away some gorilla and his little twerp of a trainer, weird team. And then I shot the guy, big guy's ear off, probably busted an eardrum. And then it well, and then the justification, no, 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 they, people wouldn't know I shot. One shot could be a car backfiring. More than one shot would draw attention, but I know my stuff. Yeah, she's always just whipping out these little moments of confidence that I thought gave her, yeah, it was a positive, in the end, it was a positive character. We were wondering how he would do with women. 
Yeah, she's she's so badass, right? Like, without her, he would not have survived anything. Yeah, right. Right? Like, in the inkling lair, she, like, slaps the shit out of him and then is like, come on, keep moving, dude. Like, what are you right, doing? Right, right. I, I loved that scene. I was like, yeah, girl, get it. <laughs> yeah. I thought that ending for her was, was quite a high note and fittingly enough since she, yeah, quite literally kept him alive. Yeah. Any other highs you want to touch on? Cause I have one, I think I have one more, but I mostly have mixed ones from here. Oh yeah. I've got, um, I've got one high and one. Low yeah. Go left. ahead. Yeah. What do you got? Um, so the other high that I have is, um, I just really enjoyed the style of this novel mm-hmm. i enjoyed that there was some beautiful imagery and there's unique descriptions and metaphors in both uh worlds so even though both worlds have each world has a unique tone to it um they both are stylistically really well done um so on page 345 this is for the the wonderland one um he's talking mm-hmm. to the rental car girl yes yes and... this was a nice one yeah, and she says, I can tell Bob Dylan in an instant. I really like his voice. It's like a kid standing at the window watching the rain. It's like very simple image, but it's just something that he mixes like sight and sound and taste and color and stuff like that. And it's just an interesting way to see the world, I think. And and it was really interesting to read some of that stuff that he wrote. Yeah, and then the way... I suppose, because you did say that you think in both narratives it does it well. Did you find it different in either? I guess I just can't get over how reference-laden the real-world narrative is and become. And it's just clear that the main character is filtering almost his entire life through this. Now, granted, it's I would say it's all pretty high-minded stuff. You know, I guess the musical yeah. references you could quibble with, but all the literary references are high-minded. Like, there's not a yeah. single literary reference that's, like, pulpy, low-brow. Even Somerset Mahan is, like, I think now considered, not maybe not a classic author, but that's, like, when the, the librarian comments to him, don't you read anything contemporary? And that's the only person yeah. he mentions. She's like, that's not really, <laughs> that's not current. <laughs> that's, it's not, like, you're yeah. still reading, you know, things considered modern classics or something like you're, right. you're just referencing Dostoevsky at length to me now and so did you <laughs> yeah. find them in any way meaningfully different the the way the descriptions felt in either of them uh for sure in in the Wonderland ones the the Tokyo ones it was all quick images right quick comparisons quick metaphors um in the yeah. end of the world stuff it was more like a paragraph of a description. It was more leisurely in the way that he would describe things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So um, on page 201, um, well, on my 201, I yeah, think that that's you and okay. I have the same. Um, so sure. it says, um, as the beasts amble, and this is a paragraph, as the beasts amble by, some hang their heads low, some paw their hooves quietly. Only after they have filed inside do I understand what the gatekeeper has wanted me to see. A few beasts have frozen to death in their posture of sleep, yet they appear not dead so much as deep in meditation. No breath issues from them, their bodies unmoving, their awareness swallowed in darkness. After all the other beasts have gone through the gate, these dead remain like growths on the face of the earth. Their horns angle up into space, almost alive. So there's, I mean, there's like a simile in there, and I guess I could have just plucked that out, but it would lose, I think, some of the punch without the rest of the paragraph there. Whereas in the wonderland ones in the Tokyo ones, 
it's like one-liners and they're just quick done and it's a good image whereas the end of the world ones are more meandering more yeah. of like looking at the whole thing rather than just the one well, it, interest point. If it's the world that they're so naturalistic. I, I just plucked a right. random page from the real life narrative. Uh, on the same page, there's the paragraph where the, the granddaughter, the paragraph reads, the girl claimed the back pages of the sports Nippon paper. Some seedy article which addressed the question, is swallowing semen good for the complexion? So then they have that <laughs> little conversation. And then in the same, on the same page, uh, we left the place and caught a taxi. It was ages before we got uh, one to stop. We were so dirty. The driver was a young guy with long hair, a huge stereo blaster on the seat, which, by the way, stereo blaster, That's this was written in 1985. So that's <laughs> just like, what is that word? On the next seat, uh, the seat next to him. I shouted our destination over the blare of the police, then sank into the backrest. So it's already like expecting you to, yeah, think about sexual kind of expectations, modern ideas of sexuality, and then also like here's this kind of cool reference to music that's maybe then considered classic and cool. It's just, it just feels like different. I mean, it's literally different worlds, of course. And so it's maybe right. maybe fitting that the the one deep in the recesses of his mind, whatever, however we're calling that, I don't know the psychological terms and I'm not going to reread those 15 pages, but so the ego or something, the untapped <laughs> part, the part he can't right. really know. It does feel so much more primal and simple, I think. And mm-hmm. yeah, maybe yeah. not breakneck as much. Well, exactly. Yeah. I'm going to happily then transition, not out of the segment, but into getting us back into legal trouble. Because I thought the Inkling stuff was good, was high-low. It was, it was both to me. I thought some of the descriptions really worked. I think the setup really intrigued me. Uh, on 212, for example, when they first get there, the sanctuary er- entrances as such. On either side of the sanctuary entrance was an intricate relief. Two fishes in a circle, each one, each with the other's tail in its mouth. Their heads swelled into aeroplane cowlings, and where their eyes should have been, two long, tendril-like feelers sprouting out. Their mouths were so, were much too large for the rest of their bodies, slit back almost to the gills, beneath which were fleshy organs resembling severed animal limbs. On each of these appendages were three claws. Claws? The dorsal fins were shaped like tongues of flames, the scales rasped out like thorns. It's probably, I don't know, it's one of the better descriptive moments maybe in the book, for me anyway. Yeah. And the fact that they never appear and that they actually can't, that they cannot be conceptualized, this is just ripped out of Lovecraft. This is just a Lovecraftian, like, 70 pages of the book. <laughs> Very strange. Tonally, I guess it worked, kind of, because it showed... I don't actually I don't know if it worked. It, it, maybe it's too fantastical. I mean they they have the the governmental system and the what's the other one called the machine? The system in the factory? There we go. The factory, yep. They have those competing kind of sci-fi narratives going on. There's info wars, there's computer stuff and manipulation of the mind and whatever. And then there's just this gothic interlude where they have to descend for a while. I think a lot of in the archetypal way it kind of works. I get the conflict I don't know. Just some of the. It's odd because I loved a lot of the descriptions, and then I look at the entirety of the book. I just think that segment could have been, I don't know, anything else. Maybe Grandpa goes. They trace him back to one of the system HQs because he has to get something, and then they do the whole conversation there. It's like I guess I was just left from that section feeling like, why did this have to happen here? It. What did it add to the Tokyo world other than just 
deep unsettling. Maybe that's enough, I guess. Maybe that was the mood it aimed for. I think, so in the the 250s in my book, there's the massive info dump, you know, with 15 pages Uh of him just explaining literally the entire story, which did bug me, by the way. That's just not... It just doesn't feel elegant to me to do that, right. but you know it, it functioned, and it made the and it made the other narrative it like tripled my interest in the in the mind narrative. So that you know worked, but I don't know how did you read the inkling section? Because yes, yeah, so the descriptions I thought were just pretty impressive throughout, and then I was like, why are we in this Lovecraft novel? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can I can definitely understand the the Lovecraft feel of it, right? It's definitely very gothic, but what I took away from it especially after he made the comment that it was like swimming across the river Styx. I was yeah, like, yeah. it it's meant to be like the Odyssey and it's meant to be, he's like crossing over, like literally crossing over. Right. And uh, I think that it was meant to kind of imitate those, those crossings, those. And I guess once he gets the knowledge he seeks, it does clarify the rest of his life. Right. I mean, it, you mm-hmm. know, for as brief as that life is, it, it is yeah. sort of, yeah, in that, in that quest, that um, kind of Orpheus-style quest in the underworld, yeah, mm-hmm. I, he does descend to get something and comes out with that thing. So, yeah, yeah it was, I guess I, I end up surprised at the overall narrative, how little it did with either of the other two groups, and then how much was about the Inklings in the end, you know? Yeah. I just was surprised yeah. by the balance, and I don't know if tonally it fully... Yeah, it worked. Any other I thought, highs or lows? I thought it was mm-hmm. interesting that the pink girl, you know, said, well, what if the CEO of the system is also the CEO of the factory? Yes, I think, like, yes, yeah, symbolically, that's a crucial line that I think we could have yeah. read into anyway if they didn't say it. But the fact that the book says that outright feeds, well, it'll, we'll get to that in the imaginary essays. But that, I think, is actually a crucial um, observation in the book. Yeah. Any other highs or lows you want to talk through? Sure. I've been doing all highs, so I will offer the low for me, which is the same as essentially what I was um, saying in the previous um, episode, which is that the librarian is still really flat for me. Yeah. <laughs> it's just... Yeah, it's interesting. She, her, she's like a non-entity almost and, and just there for what to make him feel good i don't i don't know to match his consumption i guess in a literal way yeah yeah i guess and just to maybe like really tie in that the librarian in the other world i don't know but what i found interesting towards the when we finally see her again in the end when he spends his um last night with her she finally like in all the previous in the previous ways that he had spoken to her, like their dialogue was very much just like one liners back and forth. Right. Um, yeah. I think the, it was meant to be flirty. I mean, well, for obvious yeah. reasons, right. They, in the first encounter, they try to sleep together and they can't, but that's yeah. Yeah. So, but now like when she's the only time that she actually has like full on conversations that aren't just like question, answer, question, answer is when she's talking about her husband who died. Right. In, in right. that horrific scene which i was like why 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 did he have to die that way i don't i don't understand that (laughs) you've asked me a great imaginary essay question that i just keep wanting to jump to because i think i have an answer to that in that essay but anyway yes (laughs) she it's it's fascinating that she is so flat 
and that they pair up seemingly so well because he is otherwise pretty flat in just in terms of how he responds to the world, what he takes, like he says at the end, he reflects and says like, I didn't make any decisions in my entire life except for the couple of things I've done today or yesterday. And then, you know, then he has a reflection where he thinks I wouldn't have done anything differently though, if I had done it again or something. And so, yeah, the first person that he, you know, he's like romantically responding to her. They spend that time together. They share personal things. No, I agree though. It's, we know he can write a more exuberant, female character because the because of the granddaughter you know and so i guess those two contrasting in the same story maybe if we ignore his his predilections for writing and his stylistic choices and whatever his the way he writes other novels like within this book that those two people exist in the same book i think creates some interesting things just to play off of like as foils for the main character i guess it does reveal some things about him i i think yeah she wasn't interesting though yeah, yeah, she wasn't. And then, but I'm still know. jealous, though. You're not envious. She can eat like a hundred million things. <laughs> she can, oh no, I am a hundred percent. I know, jealous right? Of that. She like, can she can do the ten thousand calorie a day diet or whatever. <laughs> I suppose I'm only envious of that. To be fair, if I can if I can just put in a real world connection, I'm only envious if that is. I don't think it's her choice. I think she kind of has to. Isn't that? Or yeah. I guess I don't. I wasn't aware of the condition she had. I'd never heard of this condition. But if, I guess if I had to do it, that would be awful because doing that every day would be – that's like the worst thing because you'd be just exhausted by the, even the idea of food. But if you could just rifle that off whenever you wanted, oof, <laughs> life would be and simpler. just imagine the food bill. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. You'd, it would be – oh, man. Food would become such a miserable chore, which you know is not the worst segue. I By the way, I only had – I kind of had a similar high-low that I'll, I'm only going to reference, reference very quickly. At the very end of the story, we get tons more about the narrator's backstory than ever, and it is with the librarian when he references the seaside and how he collected trash, but it was clean. I just thought all of those, that is a symbolic moment, was so rich, and it made me read this in a different way. But to get it so near the end, I just thought like, ah, I feed me some of those character morsels earlier or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I'm going with the food metaphor, but because we've been talking about it, I guess, but <laughs> just some of those details earlier would be so welcome in this story just because he was, he did seem hyper flat for, for a good while anyway. Mm-hmm. So some of that I, cause, but I think it changes my reading. And so I appreciate it. I thought it was like pretty well done, but yeah, I couldn't help but get to that moment when they're confiding a lot and there's more of that. And I just thought like, ah, I could have used this for thematic richness maybe a little sooner. So mm. are you ready for the imaginary essays? Any final thoughts? Uh, nope, I'm good. Let me throw mine at you first. This is the segment, by the way, for the listeners who are new to the pod. This is the second segment we do in the book clubs uh, where we present each other with an, an essay we've imagined. We're both educators in our backgrounds as we've been in that world. So I think we both kind of enjoy planning and thinking about essays and essay writing. We are not going to read a composed essay here, as that would be madness. We're just doing the fun (laughs) part of talking through the prompt, coming up with ideas, planning it, whatever, outlining. And so my question for you, Amanda, for the imaginary essay is, I'll try and cut this down, but the story is obviously about two parallel narratives and worlds. That, That part is clear. But I wonder then if parallelism manifests in other ways in the story and what we can learn about being 
split between two worlds or like what it means that these things happen in parallel to each other or at the same time did you find that idea interesting and what did it mean anything to you in the book yeah the what i thought of was like it's it's he plays a lot with the idea of opposites right specifically to be opposite the two narratives the two worlds are are depicted as being very different. And we also see that in some of um, the characters like big boy and junior (laughs) physically. Yeah. Yeah. Perhaps mentally very different Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) since we never see big boy talk and junior did all the talking. Um, So there's like opposites within the, the, the characters there's um, opposites as far as, um, death versus immortality which is the conflict that he has there there's right. the difference between semiotech versus the calcutex the system versus the the factory and there's also a, a dichotomy there with the inklings versus uh humans and above ground dwellers right that which i found really interesting too um and we see that even at the very beginning we see we see that cut off that distinction when in the end of the world the shadow and the narrator are literally cut away from each other yeah Um, yeah. that was like for me i was like okay so this is going to be where we're going to see like two things and and the idea of like light versus dark too is a big thing in this um in this novel as well so i saw a lot of a lot of of struggle as far as um well so Present kind of me with present me options. with your thesis then, though you don't have to put it all together. Obviously, we're just doing this as a thought experiment. But what what do you think then? Does the story come out in, with some statement of some kind? What what would you ultimately have to read into this? Do you think? Um. So he he really emphasizes the idea of like duality, but I think that is so that you can see, especially when you look at the ending, where he kind of takes a third option. So there's all these dual options that are set up like you can only do this or this but the reality Mm -hmm. is that if you use some creative thinking if you you know have some hope if you you know really think about it then you can actually find a different way a third option or a fourth option or a fifth option that isn't just like either or is what i was thinking do you think because we end the narrative with the 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 mind character and mm-hmm. he chooses to stay. Did, is that the third option or is that immortality? I guess as a follow-up question, though, this doesn't really relate to my prompt at all, but I realize we haven't addressed this. And it's maybe one of the more baffling things about the, the narrative. When the, when the twist was revealed, I then thought, okay, so the real life narrative is in the past, actually. And the entire mind narrative has been since the moment he became immortal. And we're learning about his introduction to his immortal world. But then there are moments that where that's probably not true because of the glowing thing and the other. There are moments when he seems to be when the, he, the real world is communicating to the subconscious or the ego world and the mind world. Did, mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, well, how do you read the very ending of it then? Is that does that feel like a dichotomous choice or a, what's the third choice in the ending, I guess? So he was set up originally with just two choices at the end there, either stay in the village and have immortality or go with the shadow and escape into, 
you know, whatever else is yeah, out Yeah, I wasn't there sure if that meant that world. his real self would die if he chose that. Like, if he chose to die, then that would have occurred. Or if that was some, or if, like, his mind could have, I mean, going back to the diagram in the book, like, if that was his mind trying to, like, brute force a solution to get the tracks back aligned, if that makes sense. Yeah. Do you remember that diagram? I just couldn't, yeah. I don't know. I mean, we could read it symbolically and stuff and with the split and the and the water and the whatever and the the way the whirlpool and the infinity symbol and whatever i don't like i yeah i think there's ways you could read it i in terms of plot clarity i don't really know what would have happened i guess I don't, maybe i'm not supposed to i don't think that we're supposed to but yeah. um th- those were the two options that that character was given right yeah. but instead yes he let his shadow go but he stayed in order to live not in the town but in the woods. Oh yeah, he does aspire to that. Okay, I remember that now. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and with the hope that one day, when he is able to give the librarian her mind back, that one day they will be able to leave the woods and the town together. Interesting. I wonder if he's his revolutionary figure. I wonder if that's even possible. He was already right. fading away. It was the shadow that grounded him. That remind right. like he was already beginning to fade, and if what the other character told him was true, then he'll be done dream reading soon. Maybe he can like force him force his way into staying, and as the dream reader, right? Otherwise, he'll lose access. Isn't that kind of at some point? I forgot who the character was who explained it this way. Maybe it was the shadow, but they said like, well, look, everyone here is a dream reader, and then once you're fully, once your shadow dies and you're fully like inoculated, you then you're just a citizen. You do something else. So I do wonder, yeah, I wonder how much of that aspiration, maybe he'll do it right away. Maybe he'll steal some skulls, go to the woods. I don't, yeah, I don't know. I guess he does kind of present a third choice. I suppose, though, in relation to the the real world, he didn't kill himself then. I mean, well, in the end of the book, that's clear, too. He's waiting to become immortal. It's not like he drove into the ocean. So I guess right. he did he did make his choice to become immortal with himself, mm-hmm. with his sub sub ego or whatever the term is. He also though didn't try to figure out a different way. No, he right? well, he, he and that's accepted with, the two options. Yeah, and that's in keeping with his total passivity. It's you know, when the grandfather yeah. asks him how do you feel? He, he almost keeps prodding him to be like, well, you're angry, right? And he's like, I don't really know. <laughs> I should be furious, but I, I'm not sure. And so he's, right. yeah, he's a total coin toss of a person to the very end. I mean, you don't really, I mean, I guess that is a choice though that he made. He didn't have yeah. the, the perhaps boldness required to commit suicide and, and take the choice to just, to pick nothingness over eternal, eternal, whatever it might be. Yeah. I wonder. And even then his, um, in, in that, narrative too he's presented with a third choice which is the girl saying that she would cryo freeze him well, and, and figure yeah, out a way to bring him back fascinatingly as well and maybe this is his maybe his subconscious mind then is picking up on that or is noticing that because be, because she does say she's going to do it so the third option is is happening right like he's right. drifting off but she's going to try and resurrect him at some point so it's like mm-hmm. the, in the real life or in the real world, the third option is taking place as far as we know. You know, that's right. as far as we're left, that is occurring. So, yeah, maybe that's reflected, too, in the subconscious or in the ego story. Maybe that's why he yeah. goes to the woods or something. I don't. How about that other question I asked, though? Did you read it as they are parallel or one is after the other? Because at first when it was revealed, I was like, oh, this is super clever. That other one has been after this the whole time. But even though we thought it was parallel. But then by the end, I was like, oh, no, wait, these are parallel because there are things that are bleeding 
from one to the right. other. So I'm not sure how you read that. I At the beginning, I, I thought that maybe they would not be parallel, but at the end, because of the skull specifically glowing, yes, yes. Uh, I was like, oh, okay, so it is parallel. Yeah, his mind was like reaching out in some way he could not understand. Yeah, yeah especially so with that and then playing on the accordion Danny Boy, I was like, yeah, okay, so that's that's a parallel. Yep. Yeah, there were too many yeah. direct connections for it to be read. Yeah, I will say at first, though, I re- I thought, man, if that's what's been going on, that, that the real world one is lagging behind the other one, that he chose immortality, and now we're learning about the consequences of that choice. Mm-hmm. I thought that would have been a fascinating, but yeah, just a different interpretation, or not even interpretation, that, that would just be a different story, so... Yeah. Um, do you have an essay you want to throw at me? I'm prepared. Yeah. So my question is, um, how does this novel fit the dystopian or utop- utopian genre? Yeah, it's the that's all the rage in sci-fi these days. And I don't know, maybe in <laughs> fantasy a bit. I'm not really sure. That doesn't really bleed into like traditional swords and shields fantasy as much. But at any rate, okay. So to prepare for this, let's start with some basic stuff. Went to the Oxford Literary Dictionary. The definition of a, of a dystopia there, they claim it has to be alarmingly unpleasant to live in, which I would generally agree. Like, it's that's the whole point of dystopia. They they put the magnifying glass in something and, and really zoom in. And then a mm-hmm. utopia, by contrast, is an ideal or superior human society, and then crucially, brought about by human, usually political arrangement for human benefit. So there has to be active usually political forces that have like acted upon to create conditions that are perfect or you know or considered very beneficial doesn't have to be paradise crucially it doesn't have to be like some Mm. weird garden of eden thing so there's like a million ways to read this i think my thesis for this would end up being that this novel disbelieves in both notions but that it considers i don't know but that it considers dystopia to be like ignorance of yourself and like the real hell maybe was that he didn't know his own mind and that he had constructed as he makes clear throughout the story that whatever the subconscious construction he was the only one who could pull off it was not of any intention it was not of his will and so it's kind of like maddening to know that you're possible of it but don't know it and i think that would be in a way a dystopia of sorts um, but let me go with a simpler interpretation. That would probably be along the lines of my answer of some kind. But I think so. Let's take the real world as maybe the dystopia. It does check some boxes. There are these shadowy forces that you can't comprehend. Like we never learn really anything about the semiotechs or the system. Like the semiotechs are revealed to be liars and violent gangsters because of those that pair ends up being them. I think that's what he mm-hmm. hypothesizes anyway. Yeah. And the system is. is like an unknowable shadow force. It's totally impenetrable. The grandpa worked there, but he even doesn't say much about it. It's like some really vast whatever. And the inklings are madness. That's like Lovecraftian, unknowable alien shit that you can't even, it's, you can't even look at them. They, they cannot be comprehended in the classic mm. tradition of, of that author. So I think that is pretty dystopian, but then again, it's all happening behind and underneath. And so it's, you know, it's not like the citizens of Tokyo in the story seem perturbed. They all seem pretty cheery. They're selling their cars and walking in the park with their kids or what have you. So I don't know if I read that as dystopian. I think the the passivity of the narrator leads me to think that his life in the real world was kind of dystopian as the shadow. I mean, the shadow tries to make the case in the after or in the, in the mind world 
that you know you can't have these things without opposites there's this very classic yin yang concept of everything needs to be balanced you cannot have you know you can't feel communion or love here you can't feel compassion here because you're not the mind is gone so you're not capable of those you're just sort of going to operate in a loop in kind of an empty literally empty minded loop and so i think i think that's supposed to be presented i think i would read that in this story as that would be the utopia i guess i don't know there's such a even when the narrator engages in things in the real world that he enjoys like the sex or the meals or you know like you said the material things the the sensory things really they they can also disappear this is where let me bring in some readings for to add meaning to that the librarian's husband right senseless murder totally random that to me reads as the dystopia of the real world where part of part of the order of the real world if we want to read into the yin yang reading like part of that means chaos too and you can't have you can never have a fully organized real world which means part of it's going to be chaotic and meaningless and random you need both if you're going to if you're going to ascribe meaning if you're going to have a subway system that runs on ticket fares you're going to have random death like you can't you're just not going to be able to have only one way and so and then the divorce feels that way too and, the, you know, she divorced him because he was too rigid and he just kind of lets it go. I mean, there was meaning there, but it sort of seemed to happen to him without warning. He said he was really happy in his marriage and then he was just left seemingly. So it's like you can't know people anyway or you can't maybe fully mm-hmm. know them as much. And so I don't know. That reads to me as always like the real world felt dystopian to me. I don't know if I can go with a full on reading of the of the mind realm as utopian. I think it would be the closer read. But I... I don't know. I mean, it, it, it is a warm world. It's a world with archetypal things that feel in place. But, you know, there's the there's the kind of friendly apathy of the gatekeeper. I don't know how to read that character. And there's the, I don't know, the librarian. They find some kind of, I, I guess at the end, right, when they're finding their closest connection, when, they're, when he's doing the skull readings in the mind world and stuff, and it, when he goes to seek the, what's the, the, power keeper <laughs> this can't be it the oh like the engineer the electrical guy yeah the engineer <laughs> the power they're all yeah. keepers the power keeper um yeah when they, when they encounter him there seems to be flickers of human connection longing he asks him to come back so there's this there are these little notions in the mind realm that not that he's going to transform it not that he's going to bring in the kind of yang of the real world but that he's that you can salvage these things in this version yeah, I don't know. That's a very long-winded reading. I went on endlessly there. So congrats, everyone, for enduring it. And it's not even a coherent reading. I, I can say that my thesis would definitely be, if I had to pick one, right, if that was the prompt, I would have to go that the real world is more dystopian. He doesn't choose it in the end, or he doesn't choose suicide, so he chooses to take his chances. He, he doesn't right. choose to end with only knowing the real Like, he chooses to try the other world, which is kind of a weirdly active choice for that character in, in a sense. I think it could be read that way. And then, yeah, the utopia of his mind, even the shadow doesn't put up much of a compelling case. The only case is there are these deeply human kind of beautiful things that you get without the chaos or that you'll miss without mm-hmm. the chaos and the kind of messiness. And I think that that feels, it feels utopian but compromised. But all of the hints that the narrator in the mind world might be an agent of change, he might be able to pull in some music, he might be able to pull in some communion or whatever. I don't know, that that stuff all reads as like a perhaps a utopia to me. Um, this will also get into when we go to our expert quotes at the end. 
they, they read it as kind of almost a nihilistic message, which I don't know. I think there's just enough hints that the mind world he is trapped in for eternity might not be that. But anyway, that is my very long winded reading. Any thoughts on the, the genres? Please jump in. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I would have to agree that the real world one is, seems more dystopian. There's like a constant threat of danger, right? The chaos brings the danger. You've got the inklings that are hanging out down below. You've got the info wars that could possibly bring danger to your front steps. There are rando strangers that'll just bash your head in, right? There's always a possibility of pain. And then in the dream world, in the, in the mind, there is no pain, but there's also no, no joy no excitement none of that so in that way i think it's a utopia that's meant to be that he wrote specifically to be like yeah but it's not really a utopia um because you lose your mind right that's the biggest thing is the shadow and the narrator in that world they specifically say that yeah this would be great except you have no mind so you can't experience the highs and the lows of life and that's why he wants to bring the mind to the librarian so that they can still experience that and then they would still be safe and they would still have like eternity together and stuff yeah, like that yeah trying to drag that in regardless or something even right. even if it's supposed to be forbidden or or something mm-hmm. yeah i let's look at the last day of the the real world life it's sort of, you know, he indulged everything he wanted to that he could think of anyway. It was mostly consumptive. Granted, I don't know what I would do on such short notice, right? It's not like he could, I, he didn't mention family or anything. You know, what would I do in my, you know, if somebody gave me such a ludicrous dilemma? It, it would be similar stuff, enjoying some small things. I would probably try and see more people I knew. But he, yeah, he, as a character, he does is so remarkably detached in the story. And so, you know, he's personable enough, but doesn't seem outgoing or doesn't seem to want to be. So I I just don't know if I can read. A, it would be difficult for me to compose an essay wherein I said that was the world that, while not a utopia, is preferable. I don't know if I could get there. It would be tough. I, I'm not sure if I could muster that argument. Yeah. I think I it's, just... It's yeah. interesting, too, um, when I think about the narrator in, in the Wonderland chapters. He's He is a flat character, but I think that he's supposed to just reflect the idea that we, a lot of us just kind of like skate through life, right? We He chose a job that he was like, okay, it'll pay me well. Right. And yeah. like, I can do it. And, and it's got good benefits, right? A lot of people do that. Um, and he did the things that he was supposed to do. He consumed, you know, to, to stave Contribute. off the boredom yeah. and the loneliness. Right. And then, um, and just kind of like floats through life. And a lot of people kind of just float through life without really making a whole lot of meaningful relationships and stuff like that either. And I just wonder if he's meant to be a reflection of, of that, of, of like humanity as like just going through life without any real appreciation. Even at the end there, he, he doesn't get, he doesn't take the initiative to do stuff that he actually wants to do. Right. He was like in a laundromat, for the pink girl. <laughs> right, right. Right. On his last day. Just sort of and functions. Like, yeah. He's just a very yeah. functional person. Right. Yeah. And I wonder how much we're meant to read into one of the final, I don't know, like deeper reflections or thoughts he has is about the, 
was it a was it a lyric? No, it was a quote I think from Car- Brothers Karamazov or something. But how his oh, yeah, life yeah, will yeah. be happy but miserable, and that that he's be you know he's long pondered or believed maybe his life fits that description where. It was. It wasn't miserable. Was it difficult? I know it was happy, but something kind of contradictory. It's yeah. It's happy, it but um, but miserable in the future, specifically in uh, the future. Oh, that's what it is. Yeah, and so yeah. this looming, yeah, that there's something looming that he should be doing or you know worried about. I, yeah, he was such a content person. It seemed content in the yeah. rhythms of his life. Yeah, I still don't know. It was a. It's a great. You know, it's a great question because I still don't know if I've settled on an answer for sure. I don't even know how I would fully construct, you know, this essay, this argument or whatever. But I think it would, yeah, it would be challenging too. I, I don't think, I think I would come down in that in that middle ground, but I'd have to put some kind of essay twist or shade on it or something. Any yeah. final thoughts on either of the prompts or questions? Nope, I'm good. Yeah, those are, those are good ones to get tangled up in. Let's move to our final couple segments then. First, we'll begin with what I think will be a quick one, but hopefully, you know, fun enough exercise. We're going to keep calling this the Lost Pages. This is just the idea that we're going to pick a topic, or in this case, not so much a topic, maybe a character, conflict, any story-based item thing that we think could make for a good supplemental story. This, In this case, it could be another novel, short story, novella, whatever, a poem. I don't know. <laughs> That'd be, sure. Um, Bob Dylan <laughs> makes for great poetry. Yeah. <laughs> what a reading. Anyway, and so I guess I'll throw it to you first. What do you think deserves expansion in this novel? The Inklings. <laughs> yeah. All right. I've, Please. I found them equally disgusting, but also really interesting just because there's such a a mystery wrapped around them. They're just there as like this menace yeah. constantly, yeah. but we don't really, we don't know what they actually look like. I don't know. How did like their language, right, is like, something that is really difficult or some kind of unprocessable it's a word now we're yeah it's like a hum in the ears Mm -hmm. right so like how how were they able to form any kind of an agreement with the semiotext and why why would they agree to do that is my question um also uh why do they like to eat people like what's what how did that develop i believe (laughs) you make an alliance by them by bringing people to the altar you bring them to the mountain to the altar mountain in the in the underground (laughs) Mm -hmm, (laughs) and you mm -hmm, within with enough sacrifice ritualistic sacrifice to their fish gods you eventually you know you can come to a compromise with them (laughs) yeah oh yeah, yeah, that's not that's not a great way to well, do we that. Like to believe, I know I read that description from earlier. Are we? Did you read that as that is a depiction of them, the Inklings, or some kind of god thing they worship? I thought of it as some something godlike that okay. they worshipped. Definitely not as though that's what they look I like. I kind of read it as them just because I pictured them being amphibian in some way, so fish creature makes sense. And then the claw thing mostly jumped out as like, oh, that makes sense because they're not swimming. Like they, although they mm-hmm. operate in the underground and they're around a lot of water, like when, you know, that water rises up. And so they can, I assume they can probably clearly swim and stuff. Their holes are all around there. And, but yeah, I don't, it, yeah. Something about that claw depiction made sense to me where I just pictured them being kind of, yeah, slimy spider-like crawling around, like mm-hmm. clinging to the walls, whatever, crawling around. Ugh. I wonder if they're human sized. Yeah. Like what, what is the, uh, like, I'm really interested in the lore. Of- yeah of their their entire existence just Mm -hmm. where did they come from (laughs) it was such an intensely grotesque sequence and it lasted a lot longer than i expected that's for sure yeah and so maybe because the the info dump happens in that section so maybe that's why but yeah that just went on and i yeah that's a great answer probably that's probably the only true answer i will throw out my 
<laughs> half answer, though I, I believe in it, which is just I want the grandfather character blown out into his own story. Make it whatever you want. The, the, that he finishes many things by saying ho 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 is <laughs> it's enough to intrigue me and grab me and think oh, let's spend more time with this guy you know he clearly has the country twang I'm not really sure what accent this has been translated into portraying for an English speaking person I would be fascinated to hear what kind of if this is like an area of Japan this person's supposed to be representing or something but yeah his jovial nature mixed with his genius I could see a story about system HQ they the lack of exploration of the system in Semiotech really does blow my mind. I know those ki- those two characters shut up, and that was a great scene and everything, but I really yeah. thought they'd end up knowing anything about either, like literally anything. But I guess reading back to the dystopian read, by the way, that, that prompt, I think that's part of it too. It's like, well, that it feels dystopian to me. I know in most dystopias we're fed these days, you know the problem so intimately. That's kind of the point is like, it's so obvious you can't ignore it. And in this case, it's, mm-hmm. it's like so bad you don't even know it's happening. That's the, it's this nightmare underneath you or something. Anyway, right. I just thought the lack of that stuff could use some prodding maybe and uh, the grandfather too, by the way, good call on the paper clips. That was a funny little payoff. And so <laughs> yeah. I'd like to see his years in the system. And so what what can he do with infinite funds? Maybe he develops the super paperclip weapon to fight the inklings or something. Like how did he never get deployed? If he can do that with a paperclip, like deploy this man for five years to fight the inkling threat. Just give mm. give him give his research development infinite funds that you have access to and you know he'll wipe out this menace no problem he was definitely one of my favorite characters i just he was so pleasant to read and and yeah his whole existence like the his his life with the semiotechs and and his research and stuff i was like man that's fascinating and and he made him so creative like even the idea of of shuffling and stuff i was like that's really intelligent that's really smart so it'd be interesting to read more about some of his ideas i'll give a brief kudos to if your sci-fi ish whatever story fantastical story has to have a 15 page explainer info dump to get over the twist or whatever put it in a character with his voice i guess because yes it was it was readable (laughs) and i even thought that part was kind of enjoyable and and of course the the revelations paid off so ultimately it's worth it whatever you know the other narrative it's like whoa and you get to read it in this new way but yeah, I still not a fan of that of, structurally of that. But in his voice, it, I was kind of charmed by parts of it too. So can't say I hated that moment for sure. I, w- I wish we would have gotten him doing something. You know, it's like we get the little intro. They have their rip, their rapport. He clearly is an eccentric man. And then, yeah, just the info dump. So respect to him anyway. Let's then go, Amanda, and end how we always do with the book clubs. Let's reach outside of ourselves to some experts out there on the internet. This is the critical assistance segment that we'll end with, and this is when we pick a piece of criticism to share and to discuss and talk through. We can agree or disagree with it, and we'll do with what we want. Um, do you want me to begin? I guess I threw it to you last time. Do you want me to put the burden yeah. on myself? Do it. I will. Okay, so I've pulled an article, I guess I'll call it that, it's more of a blog, it's a a blog, from a hilariously amateurish source, and I was Googling as usual, just clicking around, looking for titles and from publications we know. I saw MIT, and I thought, okay, maybe it's an academic thing or something. This is from their, apparently they have a science fiction society, this might also be an internet archive, like maybe, I don't know if the MIT Science Fiction Society is alive and well, but back in the night, I hope so. I know, right? It seems likely, <laughs> given the work that goes on there in the research. But this is this was posted, I think, back in the '90s or something when the book was published. 
to be clear, it was published in Japan in 85 and then was translated, I think, in the early 90s in the, in the States. Uh. But at any rate, so this is from that. It was by, I think, I assume an undergraduate named Jake Beale. So credits to you, Jake Beale. It could have been maybe a grad student or something. I can't believe it was a professor. I just don't think they'd put out something this casually formatted and worded. But if you want to go find it, go Google those things. You'll find it. Anyway, a couple of quotes to discuss. This is, uh, and I think we'll talk through both. We'll start with this one, an analysis of the character. The overriding emotion of the book, however, is detachment. The narrator confronts all these things throughout his disintegrating worlds with a calm, often ironic form of coping, simply allowing himself to be dragged along from moment to moment by what seems like the right thing to do next. It reminded me of the mood in Ghost in the Shell or The Crying of Lot 49, which are both, one's a, at least, is Ghost in the Shell like a manga? It's, oh, a mo- it's a movie, <laughs> and The Crying of Lot 49 is a Thomas Pynchon book. So, at any rate, did you feel that way, too? I mean, the, the main character is, that is like the reading, I think. His detachment. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, did and, you feel and I that it was often ironic? Uh, I don't know that I would say ironic. I didn't read it really no. that way, either. That's why this one, that quote kind of... Because I think his form of coping is to go along, but then it... so. There's a contradictory thing here, kind of. It says, what seems like the right thing to do next. I don't think there's anything ironic. He evaluates things pretty openly in the moment. Mm-hmm. And there are times, though, when he does say, you know, I like that. And I'm not sure why. Or I've always liked that. Or I did this just because. Or, you know, it's like when he follows the granddaughter. He just kind of says, like, I just I'm following her. I'm doing it. You know, and there's not deep reflection or something. So right. did you feel that the, any other characters were detached or anything? I mean, it, is that with overriding feelings? Certainly in the in the mind realm, they're not really detached. Well, I mean, that's literally what they are, but also <laughs> they, they find their thing they love and they just do it. Yeah. So they're very attached mm-hmm. to that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in, in the Wonderland one in the real world, I think the librarian is also pretty detached. Um, yeah, yeah. She doesn't, maybe it's the murder of the husband thing, but yeah, she doesn't seem particularly, she says she likes the library because all the other professions wouldn't have suited her. I mean, she does say she mm-hmm. likes the knowledge too, but it's not, yeah. it's not born out of a love, attachment, a yearning, a, a purpose. It's kind of like, well, I'm going to eliminate the other ones and here I am. Yeah. Plus it's okay. <laughs> and right. yeah, the fact that they connected so well, I don't, yeah, I guess we are meant to read into that. Okay. The other quote I'll throw out from the, this blog um, this one, I, I think I need to read the whole thing just because of it has another kind of contradiction in it. It says, I, if I don't think of the book as literature with a capital L, then I'm fairly unimpressed by the book. It's fine enough writing and a pleasant read, but what it has to say about the mind is pedestrian, though pleasantly metaphorical. And I suppose I tend to be more interested not in books that seem to be confronting the meaninglessness of, and inhumanity of the world, but in those that take for those that take that for granted in those that take that for granted yeah and move on to ask what we should do anyway now that we know it's true like a post postmodernism, as it were a couple things to read there so he literally says if i don't think of it as literature i'm unimpressed but then he says it's pleasantly metaphorical i mean that's the literary what <laughs> like i don't get that it's, yeah it's kind of I, th- <laughs> yeah. I thought maybe the opposite which is i think this book's the pleasantness of this book lies in its literariness if you don't if we hadn't have had any of this discussion, for example, and I ended this just thinking like, was that a, a journey? Was it fun? Was it an, if, like, I don't know if any of those answers would be yes, but I think given the kind of questions and problems it poses intermingled with some of the happenings and characters, 
I think that bears out a lot of intrigue. At least it did for me. So I don't know. Yeah. I also. So what it has to say about the mind is pedestrian. Uh, perhaps so. I, I don't think any of the those 10 pages of explainers were the most intricate psychology. But I also don't think the book presents clear answers. And especially when you consider the two narratives intermingling, I don't know if it felt pedestrian to me at all. I don't think there's clear answers. And I think some of the questions are significant and have plenty of things to poke or prod at them too. How do you come down on this one? Pedestrian is not a word that I would use for any aspect of this book. I feel like I, I, the conflict, yes, you can like break it down into these two this this idea of like okay to live or not to live to um enjoy life or to float through life to choose your mind or to choose safety right but these are all issues that we all in in a way have to deal with right when we're thinking about um you know freedom versus giving up some of that freedom in order for safety in order to to feel safe right or things like that. These are all concepts that we deal with. And I don't think that just because it's something that we deal with in real life, right? I don't think that that makes it pedestrian. Yeah. And I don't, there are so many things we could read into here. I'll give only one more quick, but it says that he wants a book to confront the meaninglessness of life and inhumanity, but, and also propose what we should do anyway. Uh, The book has proposals to that. Frankly, the proposals are eat a great meal and thank the chef, go to the park drink beer, drink some whiskey, listen to music you love and talk about it. Maybe. I mean, I don't, again, I don't think the narrator in any of those scenarios, those, I guess, more consumptive scenarios, right. That maybe ultimately don't even satisfy him that much. But in those things, when he's thinking about these things toward the, the end, when he knows he's going to fade away or whatever, it, it does seem that it brought satisfaction to him. And, and maybe he was at peace in a way. I mean, maybe that means he wasn't engaging with the world fully on the terms he should have been or something. And, I, just, I don't know if I read a harsh condemnation from the book in that regard, though. And so I think, I don't know, I guess I, I don't read this work fully as saying, well, what can we do anyway? There's not much to do. Or, you know, if we're like this character metaphorically, there's not really much that can be done. You know, consume what you can and, you know, maybe maybe you'll find meaning or something, you know, like maybe find atta- try and find deeper human attachments or something. I don't know. I didn't right. find it to be so hopeless as that i didn't find it to be that postmodern work in the sense of we have dismantled most societal meanings and you know god is dead whatever so it's like i didn't find it quite to have that reading to it i mean i don't know there's still social institutions right tokyo's going on fine there's the lady with her kid at the park and he respectfully responds to them like he had he has clear social obligation in the book so i Right. I don't know. Anyway, I just, yeah, it's an intriguing reading uh, to call to say that if you don't think of his literature, I'm unimpressed, but then to say it's pleasantly metaphorical is an outright contradiction, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I would have to say that if it's... if it's pleasantly metaphorical, then it is, then it is kind of literary and it has commentary it in it literary. on the times, you know, and it, and I think it has, it comments on relevant you know, if, if he wants a modernist reading, like a mo- you could put that in here. So at any rate, mm-hmm. yeah. Any final thoughts on those quotes or I don't know. I just, I, I, when you were pointing out like the consumption at the end of the day that he had, I really enjoyed that because he was not satisfied, right? Like even after their, 
humongo dinner. He was still hungry. Yeah, there's more. And he went yeah. and consumed more. Yeah. And then at the end of the day, he's like, I wish I had another beer and stuff like that. And it's the, the consumption. Yeah, he can't be sated, direct... I guess. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that's the maybe the, the big issue for me when I was reading it. That was yeah. the thing that Murakami was really honing in on, especially in contrast. But, like, I found that interesting. I Again, for me, not pedestrian. I, I thought that he presented it really in an interesting way. And ma- the idea of materialism versus, like, simplicity is always something that I find interesting. Yeah, and maybe then the clear reading, I, I think I've come around, yeah, I guess I read some of those images. It's funny, you know what movie I'm thinking, I'm thinking of the movie Soul, the Pixar movie, the new one. Did you see this? Yeah, yeah, Viola, my daughter, is in love Oh, nice, with that movie that's a great right choice. Yeah. I, I liked it, it has the Pixar, I like their more abstract, weirder stuff. I mean, I guess it's all a little yeah. weird, cause, but I like the, that stuff of the mind and the person, you know, like the inside out. But yeah. Uh, I'm thinking of the end of that movie, the like the really heart, the heart rending montage where it's just random shit. Here's a leaf. Here's a pizza. Here's a sunset. Here's a just mm-hmm. appreciate little things because it's so strange that this has all happened, you know. And I guess right. I read some of his thoughts towards the end in that vein of just like. I like Bob Dylan. I'm remembering the fish I ate. Oh, what a crust on that fish. Like, there are ways you can put that consumptive stuff together in a way where you just think, yeah, this was a, you know, I enjoyed some of this happenstance of life. But no, I think you're reading ultimately the fact that he chooses to go into his mind world and, and not leave the one he knew permanently because I don't think it fully satisfied him. And yeah, I agree that there's never enough, right? That's a good reading of like, yeah, there's never enough beer. There's never enough food. I, yeah, I think that reading is ultimately correct. So maybe in the way it is, it does seem, I don't know if I'd say meaningless, but that's where the alternate narrative would kick in. And that's where calling it pedestrian feels ludicrous to me because you can complicate that whole reading with the other narrative, with the mind narrative. Like it calls right. into question everything. So yeah, I don't know. I, pedestrian seemed an odd criticism, but I think that's a good point. Any other thoughts yeah. on Soul? <laughs> <laughs> what a great movie. Yeah, like- yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed oh, it. I, it's up there for me too. Man, I saw a yeah. ranking of. I'll be brief here. This is a, definitely a side. I saw, but I saw a ranking on a website of Pixar movies the other day. I just really have always felt like The Incredibles is so overrated. But they put it as their best movie, like the number one Pixar movie. I don't. I've never really, really? connected with The Incredibles. I, I thought they're okay. I mean, they're entertaining, but yeah. I, to say number one, yeah, I don't. It just like Inside Out and Soul to me are some of the. I'm I'll always be a Wally fan anyway. So at any rate, oh yeah, we'll get yeah, back on but track. Inside Out also a great one. <laughs> yeah, it, well, it truly is. Uh, Amanda, thoughts <laughs> on outside criticism? Would you bring to the table here? Sure, I pulled something from sfreviews.net. My favorite. Um, <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Which is um, science fiction and fantasy book reviews. And this particular article, I believe, was written by Thomas Wagner. Um, pretty short, uh, since it is an online article. But mm-hmm. um, he said a couple of things that I found interesting. So the first one is, um, it's still a brilliantly rendered literary device as our hero, throughout both of his storylines, undertakes perilous journeys, one underground in a sequence reminiscent of ancient mythological voyages into the underworld, and the other solely within the confines of his walled boundaries, where dangerous areas like the deep eastern forest and the whirlpool represent hazardous regions of inner turmoil, all in the goal of piecing himself back together. That was interesting to me because that second part where he's talking about the dangerous areas of the eastern forest and the whirlpool are 
hazardous regions of inner turmoil, I was like, man, I didn't even make that connection. I didn't even think about it that way. <laughs> well, especially when the whirlpool is depicted, uh, the shadows hypothesis is that it's a way out. I mean, right. may- maybe that's just the shadow being the the mind, the logic or something, trying to piece together some kind of logical presentation for that world. But yeah, I didn't, I do wonder if, the, yeah, those are meant to represent certain traumas. As soon as you read the the inner narrative in any sort of like allegories for psychology stuff, I think this, this opens up in a way that we didn't even discuss, maybe because I can't even unpack it. I'd have to do all the research to have the terms and everything. Like I, I read it more of like in the story, you know, which characters connected with which and how the narratives connected. But yeah, as soon as you open all that up, like what the, what the different buildings or facilities could represent more than again, just literal connection with the different, you know, why is the power generator guy that way versus the librarian? But you know, it's, there's all kinds of, I think psychology you could apply to it. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I found that interesting and I, and I hadn't thought of it that way either and and again if i go back and read this book it's like i would have a whole new perspective and a different way to read it and have a completely different experience reading it i think which so is great yeah, yeah yeah if you brought a bunch of theory to it from that world i think yeah it could could open it up any yeah. other quotes or thoughts and yeah yeah the um he says there's a lot of full-on comedy at work here particularly in the hard-boiled chapters where several absurd supporting characters turn up to riff on the tropes of the noir genre there are the obligatory heavies who turn up at our narrator's apartment to threaten him with nothing in particular then trash the place just to do it and the femme fatale in the form of the professor's plump flighty and not especially vampish daughter this tone is contrasted sometimes jarringly but never without interest with the haunting elegiac elegiac and almost elegiac? narcotic mood i guess like an elegy elegiac? yeah i think it's like yeah an like elegy. an elegy yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Elegy-esque and right, right. almost narcotic mood of the end of the world where the imagery often evokes a dream environment where you know you can't stay but somehow can't bear to leave. So I, I pulled that one because um, in the last episode we were talking about you specifically mentioned the how dreamy it felt when you were reading the descriptions of the end of the world narrative yeah. and how it was all very dreamlike and I thought that was a great a great thing to point out for you um, and, and is seen by others. Apparently. I think narcotic mood is, yeah, about as well put. It is sort of, yeah. granted, as someone who's never really been in, under the influence of narcotics, so maybe not, but yeah, at least the in the most cliched way, it does have that kind of hazy feeling, and so, mm-hmm. yeah, dream environment. And then, yeah, in the end, that that is the description, right? He, he doesn't bear to leave, and so doesn't. Yep, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's well, that's well put, too. Okay. Any final thoughts on the criticism or I guess uh, last call here? Any final thoughts on the on the story? Um, nope. I, I really enjoyed it. I think I might try to read another Murakami at some point. Excellent. Yeah. I, well, and there's plenty out there. He's been prolific in his career. So, yeah. that And that was your choice for that prompt. So, well chosen, I suppose. And I'm glad you think it paid off. Yeah, it definitely did for me. Let's set up, before we leave, for the dedicated listeners out there, let's set up our next book. So the next book is going to be a collection of novellas by Stephen King called Different Seasons. And Amanda, what was the prompt you gave me? 
Um, it was a throwback at the prompt that you gave me for this one, which is um, who is an author that you are kind of ashamed that you have not read? And I, my shame stems from his influence. I don't think stylistically I would connect with a lot of the horror stuff he's written, but I'm e- very eager to give it a shot. I've never read anything he's written. So the, both of our picks for these two have been genuine. I've never read any Stephen <laughs> King, mostly because the you know it's like you come to him culturally as a touchstone from the movies first. I think most people would, right? I mean, I get he's super prolific, but mov- movies are the big business. So I know his movies and have seen a lot of those. But yeah, so because of that influence, I've never gone back to the books. And so we chose different seasons, which is, again, a novella collection, just because... Well, we haven't done short stories yet, and these are close, right? And two of them are famous movies, Shawshank Redemption 1 and The uh, the Body, which is mm-hmm. Stay By Me? Stand By Me, I think? The movie with the kids? Yeah, we'll, we'll know like by the time yeah. it comes around. <laughs> and so <laughs> we are going to read, I think, one of those for each, if you want to read along with us. Well, firstly, the book recommendation is going to be up on March 1st. That's a Monday. We always do our book recommendations on Monday. So come listen to us, persuade you to read it, and pick it up. If you want to join in part one of the book club, that will be on March 5th or 3-5, January, February. It is March, right? <laughs> March, yeah. 3-5. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I was looking at the numbers. Just, just double-checking. And anyway, so we'll be doing different seasons by Stephen King. And again, I think the book club part one on three five or on march 5th i believe we're gonna just read one of the novellas for that episode and i think we're gonna start with the body which is again the stand by me movie with the kids so if you really want to meet us on that friday for that discussion that's what we're gonna do first and then i think part two of the book club we're gonna do another novella that was that has not been adapted i think there's two of them in there that have no adaptations and so i'm curious about those two but that's gonna be the split and those are the dates for that We thank you very much, as always, for listening. And until next time, we will see you between the pages. 